Thank you, music team, for leading us before the throne of grace. We've been looking at Matthew's gospel, and so if you want to go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 32 this morning. If you don't have your own uh, copy of God's Word, you can use the uh, church Bible there, the black-covered church Bible. Today's passage is on page 810. And when I say we're studying Matthew, we're really not studying Matthew, we're studying Jesus. Uh, Matthew is one of four gospel accounts, uh, one of four who give us what the life of Jesus looks like. Uh, and so we're studying who Jesus is uh, and what Jesus did and what Jesus said. Uh, and Matthew actually contains a lot of what Jesus said. And right now we are in a, a long portion of some things that Jesus taught called, historically in any way, the Sermon on the Mount. And we've said before, and I want to repeat it again, that what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is showing us what life in his kingdom looks like. Now, let's be clear on what we mean by God's kingdom. So, particularly, let me talk to uh, my young friends, those who are uh, 18 and younger, because I want to be sure that, that you're clear and that I'm saying this in simple enough fashion and in fact, really, I'm talking to your parents, but you listen better than they do. And so I want you to hear me so that you can tell them later, uh, remind them of what I said. When we talk about God's kingdom, we're not simply talking about a future reality. We're not talking about a place uh, that you may go one day, someday. God's kingdom is a present reality now. Wherever God is recognized as king. And so what Jesus is showing us, what Jesus is telling us is not, if I do everything Jesus says, then I'll go to heaven. No, no, no. What Jesus is showing us is, if he is your king, then this is what your life will increasingly look like. So let's be clear about what the kingdom is. It's not simply a future reality that we are heading towards. It is that. But that future blessing, the new heavens and the new earth, where God will be acknowledged as king by everyone, that present, or excuse me, that future reality works backwards into the present. What we will be, uh, the Holy Spirit is, is now making a reality in those who are following Jesus. Here's why I say that. Last week, we read some hard words about murder and how anger in your heart is the same as murder. And Jesus has more hard words for us this week. So I want to be clear about what it is that Jesus is doing He is drawing boundary lines. Uh, What does a boundary do? It tells you what's out and what's in. It tells you what is and what isn't. And so when we read these hard words of Jesus, remember that Jesus is defining for us what life looks like inside the boundaries of his kingdom. He He is drawing a stark contrast between what life is normally like what I live like, and what he wants me to live like. He's drawing a stark 
contrast between what our friends at school may live like, what our co-workers may live like, and what Jesus says is good, what we ought to live like. How many of you have ever seen fish swimming in a stream or a creek or a river? Some of y'all need to get out more. Okay. Um, Most often, right, fish swim typically with the current. It's a little bit easier to do that. But sometimes you will see fish swimming against the current, going against the flow. And what I'm about to read, Jesus is going against the flow. He is swimming upstream against the current that we are accustomed to. And we're going to have to choose, will we latch on to him and follow him and swim that way as well? That's the invitation before us. So let's give our attention to God's word, Matthew 5, verses 27 through 32. You've heard that it was said... This is Jesus speaking. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. And it's hard, but it's good. While the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, there's so much that could be said here, and I'm at something of a loss as to how best to say it. So, Lord, I need your help. We need your help to understand uh, and to apply what it is that you're telling us. So would you help us, please? Would you make us the kind of people uh, that you want us to be? Uh, And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm really hoping that Somebody else would preach this sermon. This is what happens when you go through a book passage by passage is you uh, don't get to just ride the hobby horses, uh, but you have to you have to hit those hard words as well. I, when I read this, I automatically think uh, about how, how hard Jesus is here. Right. We we want a little wiggle room. We always we tend to think of, of the extremes, you know, what, what about this case? Is it, is it okay over here? Well, well, maybe Jesus, there's an excuse over here, and Jesus doesn't seem to give us much. 
in that regard. He sounds so negative. But here's what I want us to see. I want you to see the kind of community that Jesus is creating, that Jesus is talking about. I want you to, I want you to see the positive. Right? Think, about, think about last week's passage. And that's a hard word. When you hear that to have anger in your heart towards someone is to commit murder. And that, that sounds incredibly negative. But I want you to hear the positive in that, that God's kingdom, God's kingdom is a place where seething anger and brutal words are not normal. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Doesn't that sound like a place you want to be? And then similarly with this week, God's kingdom is a place where sexuality and marriage are held in high esteem and treated with great care, where you don't have to be filled with regret and shame because you gave in to your out-of-control impulses. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Doesn't that sound like the place that you wish you were? That's what Jesus is describing. He's describing a place, a kingdom, where what we consider normal is abnormal. And what's normal there is good and beautiful and true. Um, I'm looking at a room full of people who know the pain of these words. Right. We I'm looking at a room full of people who know that we've been sold a bill of goods. At least for a few decades now, the sexual revolution has promised us life and joy. With sexual freedom. Do whatever you want with whomever you want, whenever you want. That's the path to life. And joy and happiness. And most of us have now lived long enough and we have bought into enough of those promises that we know it's a lie. And we have received death and grief for promised joy and life. That's why Jesus is hard here. But it's why there's a beautiful truth underneath what Jesus is saying. He is pointing us to something better. He is telling us that life does not have to be this way. That's what is on offer from Jesus. So what Jesus does, I just want to remind you, he is contrasting himself with the scribes and Pharisees. They would take the laws of God, the commandments of God, and they would, they would just address the surface. They left it on the surface. They left it at just the physical, behavioral level. And Jesus is challenging them and saying, no, that's not how God's law works. And here, Jesus is deepening our understanding of the seventh commandment. He says four times, uh, he refers to adultery four times. So 
That's why we're going to talk about lust and divorce together, because that's how Jesus talks about them under that heading of do not commit adultery. What Jesus is doing is deepening our understanding of that seventh commandment. First, he addresses lust. Second, he addresses divorce. He's going to speak about divorce again in Matthew 19. So we will cover uh, more then when we get to that passage because he goes into more detail. But right now, I just want us to to see the connection between the two. Uh, That what Jesus is doing is he is protecting, guarding, elevating marriage. Which is what adultery attacks, is marriage. Okay? And so, uh, three points I want to make that I think Jesus points to in this passage. One, adultery is more than physical. Just like murder is more than the physical act of taking a life, so also adultery is more than the physical act of sleeping with someone who is not your spouse. Second, I think it's also important that we see that sex is a good gift within boundaries. That is not something the church has been quick to say. It's even awkward right now talking about it in this room. But we got to talk about it. I heard this quote a few weeks ago. Uh, he who speaks first and speaks the most and speaks most often owns the conversation. When it comes to this conversation, we have lost. We must talk about this. We need to talk about it in the church. We need to talk about it in our homes. And so, parents, this morning, if you're like, "Hey, this is out of this is out of bounds. You're not supposed to be talking about this." You're you're welcome to excuse yourself if you need to. Uh, but we're going to dive in a little bit because that's what Jesus does. And I think it's important that we go here. I'm not going to be graphic or uh, inappropriate, but we need to talk about this. And then finally, the reason that Jesus is so adamant about this, the reason this is a big deal to Jesus is because marriage and sexuality point beyond themselves to something greater. They do not exist for themselves. They are not ultimate goods. They point beyond themselves to something greater. All right. So point one, adultery is more than physical. Again, the Pharisees, uh, the scribes, they were all about the letter of the law. As long as you were following the letter of the law externally, behaviorally, you're good. And so they would say, right, if you have not slept with someone who is not your spouse, then you have not committed adultery. You can check that off your list. But Jesus is not just about the letter of the law. He is. Uh, He's about the spirit of the law. And he reminds us when he speaks of the Tenth Commandment, that you are not to covet another person's anything. You're not to covet another person's spouse or someone other than your spouse. Jesus challenges their interpretation. He says that adultery is not just found in the physical act. It's found in the lingering eye. It's found in the craving heart. In fact, look at verse 28. He says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, that the, the literal phrase there for lustful intent is with uh, Whoever looks at a woman to desire her. 
Now, Jesus isn't talking about all sexual desire. And we're going to hit this in point number two. But he is saying, right, that, that, that word desire captures this well. It's a longing of the heart. It's a craving of the heart. You are longing for and desiring someone other than your spouse. So just like last week, it's not simply about what you do with your body. What do you do with your heart? That's what Jesus wants you to look at. And this applies both to men and to women. Jesus addresses men, the masculine side of this equation in these verses, but we know that this applies to both sides of the equation. Men, in general, broadly speaking, are more tempted by what we see physically. Women, in general, may be more tempted by what you feel relationally. That's broadly speaking, but the point is this. No one is immune from falling into this trap. Both men and women are adulterers. Not just physically, but with our eyes and with our hearts. And so Jesus wants us to be real about that. He wants us to acknowledge that that is true. That we uh, are easily led astray in this. But I also want us to see that sex is a good gift, right? When we talk about it negatively in terms of adultery, we can give the impression that the church and the Bible and Jesus are anti-sexuality, right? That this is, you know, kind of leave it to beaver. Parents didn't sleep in the same bed, sort of like they had different rooms, okay? Because that's what was proper. We don't talk about these things. That, that's, that's for the bedroom. It's not for out here. And that may have been true in 1952. Uh, but that, that topic of conversation, right, the moment you hand an Internet-connected device to your 8-year-old, uh, the, the influence is on, right? Our, our culture, uh, our world it is discipling. It's not just discipling our children. It's discipling us. We are discipled. Uh, we are taught how to live by everything we read, by everything we watch, by everything we listen to. And so we have a tendency, or we are at least assumed, that uh, we're anti those things, right? We, you know, you, someone might say, man, you Christians, y'all sure do talk about marriage and sex a whole lot. Well, sure we do. The whole world talks about it all the time. Why can't we talk about it, Right? And so I don't want I don't hear what Jesus isn't saying. Jesus is not saying that all sexual desire is bad or evil. Jesus and the Bible are actually pro sex. Uh, God created sex. And I want you to think about this. God made all living things to multiply. He made all living things to procreate. And so we could procreate like cells or multiply like cells, right, where we just divide, right? So when a new human is created, you know, we just pop one out the side. But that's not how he made us, right? He could have made us to multiply uh, like plants with roots in the ground and cells that absorb sunlight and, you know, ask... Josh Smitherman, how that works, right? 
Well, we, that's not how we multiply, right? God created sex. He gave us a good gift. Um, and that gift is designed to be used within certain boundaries. And that's, that's where we begin to disagree. Right? We can speak wholeheartedly that this is a good gift, that it is, uh, that it is right and good, that we are made for this. But we are made for it within certain boundaries. Uh, who enjoys a good fire? Right? There we go. More people enjoy fire than have seen fish swimming. That's good. I realize we're not that close to the ocean. There are some creeks in town. Um, right? Fire's good. Uh, it's enjoyable. It's warm. Uh, how about a fire outside of a fireplace? How about if I, I come to your house and say, hey, let's, let's have a fire, and I decide to start one in your living room floor? That's no longer a good gift, right? Uh, what, what was good has now become destructive, and that is a great analogy for sexuality. What is intended for good within certain boundaries becomes destructive outside of those boundaries. Uh, Paul would tell the Corinthian church to flee from sexual immorality, he says. Every other sin a person commits is outside of his body. The sexual immorality is inside. So what, what, is, what does he mean by that? What's, what's different about this sin from other sins? Well, when you think about sex, it is designed as relational superglue. It's a bonding agent. That's what it's supposed to do in marriage. It is the physical representation of two becoming one. It's a bonding agent. Now, what happens if I take two blocks of wood and I coat them both with wood glue and I stick them together and then I, and then I get a clamp and I tighten them down and then I leave them overnight and then I leave them two nights, three nights, Right? So that glue has had lots of, lots of chances to cure. Now I take the clamps off, and I try to pull that wood apart. Now assuming that I can do that, which is really hard to do, what is going to happen to the wood? Pieces will come off, right? Because that bonding agent has been ripped apart, and so it's going to take parts of what it was bonded to with itself. That's why, that's why Jesus is serious about that, this. This is, this is what sex was created to do, which is why it, it works within its boundaries, but when you get outside of those boundaries, it becomes destructive. You're putting glue uh, on all the wrong things, and it can cause all sorts of damage. And so we need to realize that sex is a good gift within the boundaries of marriage. And I should point out, marriage is between a man, one man and one woman. It's interesting in the story of the Bible uh, that the first sin, well, the first sin committed, of course, is unbelief, right? It's cosmic treason where Adam and Eve say, and, and it, in fact, it's interesting. Uh, if, you, if you go back to Genesis 3 and you read the words that describe Eve's sin, she looks she sees with her eyes something that she wants, and then she takes, right? So she sees, 
She has a desire in her heart. She, she looks at the fruit. She sees that it is good and desirable to make one wise, and then she takes it. What a great, I mean, that, is that not the progression of sin, particularly sexual sin? We see, stirs our imagination, we desire something, and we take it, right? What is the next sin that is committed, that at least is recorded for us? Uh, Cain murders Abel. And then, shortly on the heels of that, Cain's descendants, one of them is a man named Lamech. And Lamech takes two wives. And if you read about, he not only takes two wives, but he also murders people. And then he brags about it. So it's interesting that of the first two sins that Jesus treats, they're also the first two sins that we see in the story of the Bible. We denigrate the value of human life uh, and we take other people for our good pleasure. And Jesus is telling us this is not how it was meant to be. Um, I wasn't quite sure where to fit this one in, and so we'll just work it in here. Jesus' words on divorce, how do they connect to this? Well, Jesus is addressing, again, an interpretation of the law that, w- uh, that was very loose. Um, again, like us, you know, I mentioned this last week, whenever it comes to the law, we're always looking for ways out. And so Jesus quotes in verse 31 from Deuteronomy 24. And again, Jesus will come back to this in Matthew 19, but we'll mention it briefly here. Uh, The Pharisees had a very loose interpretation. Uh, There was a school of thought that looked at that law in Deuteronomy 24 that said a man could, if he found the, the, the word in Deuteronomy 24 is indecency. That if a man found some indecency in his wife, he could hand her a certificate of divorce. And so there was a school of thought that said, if she burns your toast, you can divorce her, right? That, that expanded the provision to say you can, you can cut her loose if she displeases you in some way. And then there was a school of thought that was very narrow uh, in its interpretation of that law. Uh, and as we're going to see, Jesus falls on the narrow side, right? And that, uh, but why does Jesus fall there? How is divorce related to adultery? Well, because Jesus is saying when you get divorced, when you, when you annul your marriage covenant for, for, for unbiblical, I don't even want to say unbiblical reasons, for reasons other than those allowed by Jesus, you have created an adulterous situation. Now, What do we do with that? Because in this room, several people, right? You're either divorced or you're divorced and remarried. And so this raises the question of, okay, well, am I now an adulterer? Am I, am I causing my wife to commit adultery because I was married previously and now I divorced her and married her and I'm not sure that our grounds were biblical? You know, so does that mean that I need to get another divorce? No. Right. Um, If two wrongs don't make a right, three wrongs certainly don't. Jesus is not saying that. And it's also worth pointing out, and I'll point it out again when we get to Matthew 19, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. So if you realize you're in a situation like what Jesus is talking about here, 
you realize, you know what? I'm not sure that I had grounds to leave my marriage. You can confess that and repent that to the Lord and receive his forgiveness and do your best to walk in righteousness from this day forward with the, with the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus is not saying uh, un, undo the marriage you're currently in and go back to that one. Right? That, that may not even be an option, right? There's, and again, this is where we can, there's, there's so much we can say because I know there are so many different scenarios. And so this, this morning, I just want to point out that Jesus is, Jesus is protecting marriage because we cheapen it. We cheapen it with our lust, and we cheapen it with easy divorce. Right? When we say, ah, you know what, I'm out. Uh, I, this, this, this spouse is not meeting my expectations. Let me find a new one. Jesus says, no, that's, that's not the right way to go. All right. Uh, point number three, marriage points beyond itself to something greater. Sex and marriage are not the ultimate good. Jesus is. Parents, uh, we can often talk about marriage as if it is the goal for our children. Now, it's right for you, it's good as a parent, to pray that if the Lord uh, wants your child to get married, that he or she would marry a godly person who points them to Jesus. That is a good thing to pray. But sometimes I wonder if we haven't made marriage the idol, and we worship marriage. We won't be married in heaven. Jesus tells us that. That in the new heavens and the new earth, we will no longer be married, at least not to one another. We will be married to Jesus. And so marriage is just a temporary relationship. It's an important one, but it's temporary. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's better to not be married. Because the married person is distracted with caring for their spouse. And the unmarried person has eyes only for Jesus, right? And so let's, let's make sure that our goals for our children are in the proper place. If marriage is in their future, then a, we want a good marriage. We want to pray for that. But that may not be their future, and that's okay. In fact, Paul would say it's actually good. Um, marriage is an ultimate Sex is an ultimate. We will not have sex in the new heavens and the new earth. There will no longer be a need for multiplying, being fruitful and multiplying. We won't have to. That, that good gift belongs to this era. And that's important to say because, again, outside of the kingdom, it is ultimate. It is an ultimate pursuit for many people. It is an ultimate pursuit for many in this room. It has been an ultimate pursuit in the past. That's, that's the line that we're fed. But eternity actually matters more. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 29 and 30. 
Again, hard words. But he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to go maimed into glory than for your whole body to be cast into hell. What is Jesus saying? Is he telling us that we need to physically maim ourselves? There have, there have been those who have in, understood Jesus in that way. But that actually doesn't really square if you remember that sin begins in the heart. I can pluck out both of my eyes and cut off both hands and feet and still sin. That is not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is take it seriously. Take it deathly seriously. The, Paul, uh, the, the word that Paul uses in Romans 8 is mortify your flesh. Put it to death. Mortify, not mutilate. What's he mean? Again, let's use the illustration of fire. I had some old gasoline, got a little bit of water in it, and I had the bright idea that I was going to pour that on the fire in my backyard. I'm glad I didn't die. You, some of you know what happens when you pour gasoline on a fire. Wherever that gasoline falls, fire goes with it. Jesus is saying, don't pour gasoline on the fire. Right? You're, you're, take serious measures if you have to. When I uh, talk with men who've been addicted to pornography, and by the way, it's not just men. Increasing numbers of women are, are addicted to pornography. Right, I use the illustration of uh, a pool filled with toxic waste, right, a, a pond filled with waste. If I'm going to clean the pond, what do I first need to do? I've got to cut off the source of the waste that's pouring in. That may mean some drastic measures. Jesus is saying, be prepared to take drastic measures to protect your marriage. You might have to quit your job. What am I going to do? I don't know. But it's better to eat ramen noodles than go to hell. Jesus is saying you may have to take drastic measures to protect the sanctity of your marriage. That's what he means. Why? Because eternity matters more. Because the new heavens and the new earth matter more. More. So I can take what seems like a drastic measure here, but if it means I preserve my life for later, then it's worth doing. That's what Jesus means. Now, what gives us the power to do that? How, how, do, I, how do I get the power to take such drastic measures? How do I keep my eye from wandering how do I keep my heart from desiring things that I should not desire? And you remember a couple of things. Again, marriage points beyond itself to something greater. Marriage is just a temporary signpost that points us to Jesus' relationship with his church. God's relationship with his people. And Jesus has eyes 
for only one bride. He does not look anywhere else. And look, I know how messed up I am. I know how messed up some of you are. And I am shocked that Jesus doesn't have eyes for another bride. He looks at this bride. And he says, I delight in her. I want her. I'm coming to get her. Right? We just sang it. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Jesus has eyes for one bride. And she ain't all that attractive. And she runs around on him a lot. But he loves her all the same. And he came to redeem her. And he is committed to his marriage vows. He made promises And he kept them. He was committed to his marriage all the way to death. So how do we get the power and energy to protect and elevate our own marriages? We remember that our marriage is meant to point to somebody else who has eyes for no one else and who is committed all the way to death. Listen to Isaiah 49. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Because the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But his people said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. In Isaiah's day, what pagan worshipers would do is they would mark themselves and cut themselves as a form of worship. And here's the Lord saying, I have engraved you. On the palms of my hands. Friends, if you find yourself, when you find yourself wandering, when the eye drifts to a relationship that you should not have, when your heart longs for a relationship you should not have, I want you to remember that the Lord Jesus has engraven you on the palms of his nail scarred hands, and he gives you his Holy Spirit so that you will not stumble and fall. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have to admit that we are all adulterers, that at least most of us uh, have not kept our vows, not in heart, Not with our eyes, and some of us even not with our bodies. But we also need to remember that you came for people like us. That you have come to forgive us, and to make us new, to wash us clean, and to set us in a good direction. 
Lord Jesus, you came to die for adulterers, people like us. You became an adulterer in our place so that we would become righteousness in yours. Lord, I pray that everyone here would see their sinfulness and their need, but also see your great mercy. This is a, this is a hard place for so many of us. And we need to remember your mercy. Lord, for those uh, who are trapped in shame and guilt and regret, Lord, I pray particularly for them that they would know your pardoning grace. That we are not our past sins. We are not identified as adulterers anymore if we are in you. May we embrace that new identity. Holy Spirit, not only bring conviction, but would you also provide supernatural help that ties the chains of sexual morality and desire are strong and they can bear us down and weigh us down. Holy Spirit, Would you cut those chains? Would you give us the strength to close our eyes when we need to? Give us the strength to walk away when we need to. Give us the strength to not read that book or go to that website. Give us the strength to pursue you. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have eyes only for us. That you are more committed to us than we have ever been committed to you. You are more committed to us than we are committed to ourselves. You have, you have the life and the joy that we're looking for. You alone are satisfaction. I pray that we would find our satisfaction in you. And I pray it in Jesus' name.